1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Annie Zaleski, who's written a book called Rio by Duran Duran for the 33 and a Third series. Welcome, Annie.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So we've done a lot of interviews with authors for the 33 and a third series, and they're always really interesting. And I always use the standard first question. So give us your pitch to 33 and a third. What was it that you wanted to write about?
2: That's a really good question because I started pitching this book in 2007. And over the years, my pitch evolved a little bit. The crux of the pitch is Duran Duran is an amazing band and they deserve more respect than they receive basically for their music and songwriting. And so that was part of the pitch. That was kind of one of the through lines, you know, from all the pitches I've done. And then this particular one I did was just kind of making a case for Rio as being a real groundbreaking album and a real groundbreaking effort that goes into their music videos. That goes into how they kind of aligned with the rise of MTV. It goes into how just the record is sequenced very well. But it also goes into the record itself had a very interesting story in America that took a while for the LP to become popular in America, even though it kind of connected in UK and Australia earlier. So there was kind of this like, you know, almost literary novel like arc of triumph involved with it. So it also had a really good story.
1: Well, that's interesting because I'm a little bit ahead of the curve, i.e. older. So for me, they very much arrived full blown. And it was fascinating in your book to read, you know, sort of some of the troubles, particularly like you said, in America. You open your book with a philosophy that I fully support and also use in a lot of my music arguments. And that is, quote, context is everything when it comes to formative musical influences. Tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, I'm really glad you gravitated toward that because I've always believed that. You could hear a record by a band and absolutely hate it and say, oh, this is terrible. But then later in life, potentially, you might hear the record. You know, maybe you're with, um, you know, a romantic partner uh, that, you know, you're deeply in love with or you're out with friends and you might hear a song or an album and it could hit you in a completely different way. And you could be like, what was I thinking? Why did I even hate this in the first place? And so with Duran Duran, you know, I came to them uh, because I am a little bit younger. I came to them circa the wedding album. They were a much different band by that point. Um, they had been uh, around for, oh, geez, like almost 15 years. And, you know, their music was a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit older. So I had this really different perception of them than someone who maybe you know first saw them in the early 80s.
1: Right. And I have to admit, I was pretty blown away by what you picked up from your local library when you got Rio back when people did that, which I did as well. Can you tell our listeners what those albums were?
2: So my local library was like my lifeline to cool music. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't have a lot of music. You don't have a big allowance. And so I basically, you know, got things out like the Velvet Underground and Nico. I had Kraftwerks, Autobahn. I had U2's early album, This Boy in October. I had REM's Chronic Town. And, you know, I have those tapes. I would, I would dub them the cassette and listen to them over and over again. And I still have those cassettes. You know, and so, and again, that was another thing that was, you know, kind of like context. All of those records were really kind of divorced from their social context or cultural context. I found them in the stacks and heard they were legendary. And I said, you know, let me give them a, a listen. So all of them kind of formed together this really sort of interesting blend that really kind of helped shape my musical tastes.
1: Rio seems like the outlier to me, at least on the surface, and before reading your book, but that was in the mix. Why?
2: First off, because I discovered Duran Duran, you know, with the wedding album, I also had this really cool modern rock station in Cleveland that would play 80s stuff. So I heard 80s Duran Duran. And so I you know, naturally gravitated toward the early stuff too. You know, I got their greatest hits record decade. And then Rio, if I remember correctly, Rio felt very difficult to find in the 90s. And I think that feels almost kind of unheard of now, but I remember that the CD was almost like this mythical thing, but our library had it. And so I ended up taking it out of the library. It's interesting in hindsight because Duran Duran loved the Velvet Underground and like Lou Reed. And, you know, and Ultravox was, you know, maybe just came out a little bit before they did, but just in terms of their video ambition and their kind of dramatic sound, you know, there were some parallels and U2 as well. I mean, early U2 was very influenced by post-punk and Joy Division. So kind of in hindsight, there were some parallels between those albums, even though you're right. I think, you know, when you look at it on the surface, you know, they all seem completely different.
1: You know, speaking of different music, you write early on in your book that John Taylor crystallized his vision for Duran Duran Sound as, quote, a cross between Chic and the Sex Pistols. Wow. <laughs> Did he succeed, do
2: you think? You know— They did. I think that's the, you know, most remarkable thing. You know, I mean, you think about Duran Duran and I mean, yeah, if you want to talk about polar opposites on the surface, chic, you know, this amazing disco band, the live band influenced by soul and R&B and dance music, all about good times. Then you have the Sex Pistols who are, you know, punk and just really rattling against the status quo, very loud and, you know, the opposite of debonair. And so you think like how on earth do those fit together? But what's interesting is they did do that. You know, I think Duran Duran was very, Very danceable. They really kind of took chic's, you know, universal good time, you know, sentiment. Let's get on out of the dance floor. But they kind of did it their own way. Like the Sex Pistols did it their own way. You know, the Sex Pistols kind of, you know, blazed their own rebellious trail through music. And Duran Duran kind of did that too, honestly. So Mm -hmm. yeah, believe it or not, they succeeded.
1: And one person who agreed with you, and I found this fascinating, was the graphic designer Malcolm Garrett, who designed album covers for Buzzcocks and Magazine, who I love, and he would later design the sleeve for Rio, and he totally got that connection. Can you recount what he said about Taylor's comment?
2: He actually provided one of my favorite quotes in the book. He kind of talked about how, you know, among other things, you know, Duran Duran was really this kind of DIY unit. And so when you think about the Sex Pistols, who, you know, were the creation of Malcolm McLaren and they were all about rabble rousing and, you know, basically doing their own thing with fashion and just saying, you know, making it up as they went along. Duran Duran was very much like that, you know, even though they, you know, bought all of the, you know, the wonderful like debonair fashions at the time. They definitely kind of did it their own way. They were the kind of this DIY gang almost. And they married that to Chic and the dance music. It was a little bit musically, but it was a lot more about the ethos. That's how they ended up kind of being successful is that Duran really understood why Chic and the Sex Pistols were successful, you know, and for different reasons. And they really kind of picked up on that, incorporated that in their own band, but did it their own way.
1: Even their debut album, which, you know, obviously came before Rio, but, you know, their sound and their look were fully formed at that point. And that is very unusual.
2: It's very true. And, you know, you think about it, Duran Duran's debut album came out in June of 1981. They had only kind of formalized and crystallized their lineup in July of 1980. So less than a year later, they basically put out this record that did have a very cohesive sound very influenced by Roxy Music and Japan and Bowie and all their influences. Uh, I think you're right, a lot of first records kind of all over the map, you know, because bands were, you know, dabbling in different things and trying to, out different sounds and trying to figure out who they are. Duran Duran was doing that too, but they just had a knack for, like, they they knew how things fit together, even, even then. And you're right, like, even their look, you know, everything was just really unified. And, you know, and obviously they had started in the late 70s. And so, you know, with with different lineups, and so they had some experience. But it's still just incredible that they put out this first record that was just really this cohesive statement because a lot of bands just don't do that.
1: And the debut album did get some airplay, but it was much hotter in the clubs and particularly with videos, which they were definitely on the cutting edge of. And Girls on Film was one that really put them over the top. 100%.
2: And, you know, Girls on Film is one of those videos that, uh, you know, you have the edited version that people Mm. are familiar with. And there's a, uh, I I don't even know if it's X rated or at least R rated, that is definitely, you know, it would definitely take off into clubs because it was extremely risque in terms of the scenes it had. There was nudity. There were some definitely, you know, very sexually suggestive scenes and some, you know, kind of winking double entendres. Not even winking. They were kind Mm -hmm. of like hitting you over the head, honestly. And so, you know, it was one of those things that if you were in the club and you saw it, it was definitely like it grabbed your attention. Honestly, you know, and it was so different than other videos that were going on by then. You know, so many bands from England that were making videos for the clubs and things like that, but they just like really went over the top you know they work with godly and cream and just even the, the cinematic film quality was just better than a lot of the other videos too it was basically sort of like a mini movie
1: i do have to ask because i did go back and look at the naughty version and in in the spirit of context since we were talking about that earlier do you think a video like that could get made today and in... i
2: know i don't think so at all when you, when you talk about kind of timing any band put out something like that today absolutely not people would be like what are you doing right, really right. yeah
1: And it's, it's important to note too, that club culture was much more cutting edge back then. Like it was not a closed scene, but it was, if you knew, you knew. And if you didn't, you didn't, you know? And so those kinds of things could really be done, I guess.
2: No, absolutely. You know, and that, that's exactly it. You know, clubs back then function sort of in a very different way than they do now. You know, obviously there are still, you know, amazing dance clubs all over the world, but it was definitely a little bit more, a little bit where anything goes, I think. And so I think in the spirit of that Girls on Film really kind of aligned with that.
1: You're listening to All Music Books Deep Dive, part of All Music Podcasts and Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Annie Zaleski, who has written a book for the 33 and a Third series on Duran Duran's Rio. Others in your book talk a lot about how in sync the band was with each other, like musically. And and we talked a little bit about the fashion aspects. Can you explain that? Is that just who they were?
2: You know, a lot of it is just really a testament to the chemistry. And on the first record, you know, they talked about how they were kind of figuring out who they were and how they kind of worked together. But then by the time they hit Rio, they had basically hit the road. They had basically toured for most of 1981. They really honed their live show. They really figured out how, you know, their strengths and their weaknesses and how they could play off one another and what made sense. And, you know, they just really were kind of a creative unit you know, when you look at kind of the lifespan of bands, they ebb and flow, especially bands who've been together for a very long time. They ebb and flow over the years, you know, and certain records sound better than others. Certain records are definitely, you know, more cohesive than others. And it just so happened that the stars aligned for Duran Duran. You know, they were working hard. They were all really committed to the band. They were committed to songwriting, committed to making music. And they were basically, you know, moving in the same direction. There were no outliers. I think the members would say, you know, there were some disagreements, but they all kind of had their eyes on the goal and, and, you know, the goal of being successful, breaking America, making the best music they could. And so you can really sense that in the Rio era.
1: And to that end, Hungry Like the Wolf, which was certainly one of their biggest hits, emerged almost fully formed from a hungover mid-morning demo session, which is amazing.
2: It is. And, you know, and this is one of those stories that, you know, when they talk about, oh yeah, we wrote a hit in 10 minutes, you know, and it took Duran Duran longer than 10 minutes, but you know they had demo time in London, and they basically, you know, they were and they were still kids, basically young kids at that point, and so they availed themselves of you know what London nightlife had to offer. And but the next morning they had to show up to the studio and and you know do some work. So you know Nick Rhodes recalled being kind of hungover, and they started playing, and all the band members trickled in during the rest of the day, and you know Andy Taylor had that amazing guitar riff. And then, you know, there was the rhythm section and Simon had things they you know, lyrics he sang over It just came together. It's described as effortless. And when you listen to the song, you can kind of hear that because it's just really, you know, really effervescent song.
1: Yeah, but, you know, throughout all of their songs, really, you detail quite a bit about how a drummer, I think, could go in and find little percussion pieces or Simon LeBond would be playing these little things. And they they were constantly adding and experimenting, really, uh, which is surprising because they don't come across to me as experimental because everything sounds so perfect, you know.
2: And that's what's so interesting is that, you know, especially at that point in their career, you know, even though they were all in sync, they were also all in sync about, you know, let's try something. Let's see if it sticks. You know, who knows? Because they were still kind of at that point in their career where their sound was wide open. The world was wide open to them. This is a little detail that Simon mentioned um, on a Twitter listening party he did with Tim Burgess last year that, you know, Colin Thurston, who produced the record, brought in this huge container, basically percussion instruments. And, you know, Simon was messing around and added some stuff. And, you know, in the studio, they were like, "Okay, well, we'll add a little bit of overdubs, you know, here and there. And they were really willing to, you know, use what they had, but also, you know, not go overboard. You know, I think what's so interesting about Rio is that it is a really dense record. It's a really lush record, but it doesn't sound overdone. Some records that are unbelievable studio creations and you're just like, wow, there's, there's a lot going on. It feels labored over. And Rio doesn't. And I think that's a real testament to also the songs.
1: So who named the record Rio and what was the thought process behind that? Because these guys were from Birmingham, right? Which is a very, very working class part of England.
2: Absolutely. And so Rio was John Taylor. He came up with the idea because Rio really represented this exotic place, this warm weather destination, you know, maybe a carnival that's just really glamorous. And fancy, you know, you're maybe you're going out and having, you know, a great meal and some great drinks. Maybe there's some beautiful people all around. It represented something. Duran Duran had been traveling the world in 1981, but yet that was sort of the ultimate dream was this, you know, mythical Rio. And so he came up with that. And what's incredible about it is that, you know, he came up with the concept. You know, the record kind of, you know, ended up embodying that concept, but it was very unconscious. You know, they weren't trying to do a concept record or anything. And it just ended up because everything swirling around in their lives that time was poured into the songwriting. It just all really fit.
1: I was amazed how young these guys were when they made this record
2: it's amazing. Like, and and that's something, you know, when I sat down and kind of triangulated where their birthdays were and when they were making the record, you know, Nick Rhodes was 19. Simon LeBon was the oldest at 23. And, you know, you think about that now, I mean, when you, if you even personally think back to, you know, what you were like at that age, it's like, I was barely getting out of bed for college classes in the morning, you know, and they're making this amazing music just in terms of musicianship. They were just really ahead of their time, but it's also important to notice that they were young, you know, they weren't these grizzled veterans or these jaded veterans. They were just like this, you know, group of young kids who still had that real excitement that, oh, my gosh, we're in a band. We're on a label. We're making records. We can travel the world. You know, there's that excitement.
1: So being young, having a lot of punk bands influence you, how did the band deal with the criticism that they were prefab and manufactured pop band?
2: You know, I mean, part of it was, you know, you read interviews from that time and they were definitely basically defending themselves and debunking that as a myth you know, pretty vehemently that like, you know, come on, we're, you know, we write these songs, but they also wrote better songs then, you know, if people thought, you know, they can't play their instruments, you know, it, it's like playing well is the best revenge, basically, you know, so they became this ferocious live band, and they started writing better songs. And they started, you know, making sure that, you know, if people wanted to criticize them Well, they did their best. So, you know, they really sort of, you know, poured everything like that into their creativity.
1: I want to circle back to context one more time, because you call Rio a perfect album. But you also note that Nick Rhodes, quote, fretted about how it turned out. So where's the truth lie?
2: Both things are true. Nick Rhodes is known as kind of being a studio perfectionist. All of Duran Duran is perfectionist. You know, even last week, a video came out and and Nick was kind of dryly saying, you know, Duran Duran needs deadlines because, you know, if if they don't have, you know, a final point where they need to finish a record, they'll be in the studio forever. Hmm because they just want to put out the best music possible. And so, you know, Rio ended up being a perfect album because of all the work they put into it. But there was still that worry, Uh, you know, when their first album was successful in the UK and Australia, and it had some mild success in the States, but there was no guarantee. I mean, your, your band's second record is always very fraught with expectations because now people are expecting you to put out something. You know, people are anticipating your record. So that can be really nerve wracking, especially because, you know, they were mixing the record and trying to, make sure that everything was as best as it could be there's that just a little bit of worry and anxiety
1: these guys are really young but they had some really eclectic tastes i think stockhausen you mentioned or craft um, work obviously but how, how did they influence them can you name a couple of tunes or tracks in particular that you think were influential
2: yeah. You know, so Stockhausen, and this is this is one of those cool little details. And when you listen to the the title track, Rio, and, you know, at the very beginning, there's that intro where it comes in gradually. And that's where, you know, there were these rods that they dropped onto the piano and they kind of mic'd it up and recorded that. And they flipped over the tape to kind of have this like cool experimental that's pretty cutting edge for, you know, a a band of, you know, basically kids doing this stuff. So they were really sort of even thinking about sonic landscapes in a, in a very kind of sophisticated way. So that's one of them. I think uh, the band Japan is another influence and you hear that a little bit more in kind of the more artistic sides of Rio, you know, stuff that's a little bit more, maybe moodier, a little bit more kind of atmospheric washes, you know, Nick Rhodes keyboards, especially, I think are very influenced by, Brian Eno and some of his more textural parts but what's interesting is that you know they had all these different influences but it was still difficult to really pinpoint you know draw a straight line and say oh that's their Bowie song oh that's their Roxy music song you know there were elements of that in there but they really incorporated them in very unique ways and they really assimilated all of their influences in just really smart ways too just because they were different players they put their own spin on what their heroes were doing.
1: Well, I'm a huge Brian Eno fan, and I will say it was very smart of them not to mimic his hairstyling of any particular <laughs> era, because that would have been a disaster. Um, you know, I've worked in the music industry as an art director, and we need to talk about the cover by Patrick Nagel. Absolutely. Um, it, it was just a huge part of the success, and the style would be very influential. But I remember when it came out, that style, and it may have been all just Nagel's art, but the album cover, it was everywhere
2: basically what happened is, you know, he had the painting for the album, basically it came out. And then when Rio hit big, it was used for an art show in Texas. So it became known as Texas. And so like by, you know, the Christmas season, you know, of 1983, there were prints. And so, you know, it just became this thing, you know, if if you were, you know, around then you would know it was was really kind of bubbling up, you know, Mm -hmm. he was definitely kind of one of the, you know, it people. But then after kind of Duran Duran really, you know, it became everywhere. It was just sort of, you know, he became very you know hipper by association basically you know even even now his style and his artwork is so influential just in terms of cartoons and in clothing you know there's just that aesthetic that just really conveys something it's conveys something glamorous and mysterious but it's also very respectful he's drawing these beautiful women they're very you know they're impish and they have personality it's such a shame that he passed away at such a young age because his potential was just limitless.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's impossible to overstate how much that image was around. You know, Mm -hmm. you saw it literally everywhere. It's the sign of, you know, execution and perfection. When you hear an album cover's name and you see the album cover in your head, that's what happens with this one as soon as you see it. And you wrote that the band commented when they chose that cover, they all said it was love at first sight and they were all on the same page.
2: Absolutely. You know, and this was, uh, you know, that's what that was a Nick Rhodes quote again, you know and I mean? And, and you look at it, you know, there was another alternate potential option It was a little bit more of a one of Nagel's more familiar photos where it wasn't just a face it was a little bit more of a body as well and it ended up on I think it was like it was a single I believe maybe in Japan so it's it's out there you can find it but they were right the real woman just really conveys so much she's enigmatic but she's also kind of you know playful you know you want to know she has a secret you can tell and you want to know what that secret is it's one of those things that makes you want to listen to the record then because there's just something so different about it and you know and Duran Duran had put their own photo on you know the first record and so it was a pretty bold statement that they were like you know no, you know, we've done that. So we want to do something, you know, elevated a little bit more. And so that also really kind of indicated that Rio was something special and Rio was something different.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's got kind of a noir thing with a modern kind of touch, you know, which is is really interesting. And Absolutely. The model for that painting even talked in your book about how she was known as Rio after that, which is crazy.
2: It was the woman who was in the video for Rio. When you watch the video now, you know, which was filmed, you know, long after the painting was chosen, you know, the way her face makeup is, it definitely is a little bit, it's playful, like Rio, absolutely.
3: This year is your year, even if you also said that in 2022, and however you want to make a splash mother nature can help you every step of the way with wool runner mizzles from Allbirds. birds wool runner mizzles are shoes made from premium supernatural weather repellent materials so you can jump into this year with both feet rain or shine the high top uppers are made from temperature regulating moisture wicking merino wool treated with durable puddle guard technology to keep you dry and comfy and you can take confident strides with supernatural rubber treads that grip for all condition traction and sugarcane based sweet foam midsoles that put a little bounce in each step. Allbirds is constantly innovating to increase the performance and longevity of their earth-friendly materials. So even on your toughest outings, you'll wear out before your shoes do. This year, make a splash without worrying about getting your feet wet with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's a l l b i r d s.com.
1: We're speaking with Annie Zaleski, who wrote a book for the 33 and a Third series on Duran Duran's Rio, There's a lot of talk in your book about the band's style as well, the hair, the makeup, the clothes, this album cover. And in certain parts of the U.S. at that time, and within the label as well, we should mention, some of that femininity didn't play well in the States, but didn't quite get what they were after.
2: When you talk about context, that's once again, like so much of the context of the time. Because if you think about the early eighties, the rock bands that were popular in the US in the early eighties, it was all very much like, you know, meat potatoes, you know, jeans and t-shirts and, you know, rock bands. So, you know, maybe I think the cars were probably, you know, the, the snazziest band, I guess, in terms of, you know, new wave sort of bands, you know, just in terms of if we're talking about male musicians, you know, it was very much like Midwest, like Bob Seeger and Steve Miller, And, Mm -hmm. you know, we had from Canada, you had Rush and, you know, Fleetwood Mac was still big. And so it, it was just really interesting that it was, you know, a much different thing than coming out with this band who was wearing these beautiful suits who were inspired by David Bowie, inspired by Roxy Music, or wearing cutting edge clothing even I mean if you think about like you know the hippest you know clothing store in your town that's what Duran Duran rolled up in you know they were just had all the cutting edge cool clothes from England really in America it was just a much different thing And in England they fit in you know there were so many bands like them you know there was so they came out of a scene of dressing up and going out to clubs that's what everyone did and in America it was just so different at that time
1: Well, it's interesting because you can't see that stuff on the radio, but it's right there on video, the hair and the clothes. And it was video that first really got behind their success and contributed mightily.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, what's what's so interesting is that, you know, their debut album came out in June of 81, MTV went on the air two months later. And they did get some airplay on MTV from the first record, you know, Planet Earth. There's some promos actually MTV made with Planet Earth and I think girls on film also got a little bit of airplay. And Duran Duran too, when they came to America for the first time, they taped the segment on MTV. But, you know, Rio was when, you know, the channel had finally kind of started growing a little bit because, of course, at first it wasn't in very many households. You know, it was very much like kind of a piecemeal rollout over America in small towns because cable was still a fairly new phenomenon, which is, you know, Difficult to imagine now since it's so widespread. And so, but when Rio came out, you know, Duran Duran made, Basically, these amazing mini movies. MTV added Hungry Like the Wolf in early July of 82 in rotation. I, I found some notes on that, which just blew my mind because that was basically two months after the record came out. And so they really supported the band and Rio from the very beginning. By the fall, you know, Rio, the video was getting airplay. And but this was all before radio was really giving them heavy support. They had some pockets of support on some rock stations and some more cutting edge stations and even a top 40 station in Boston, but those were the outliers. You know, they were still, it was a very slow build. And, you know, there wasn't kind of the mainstream consensus until early 1983.
1: Well, the industry was moving in a different direction at this stage too. MTV, as you mentioned, it was very new and, and perhaps unproven at the time, but they did make labels and radio awaken to the fact that they could sell records through video.
2: That's exactly it, you know, and it's, it's so funny, like just how almost instantaneous it was, you know, not just Duran Duran, but, you know, some some other markets, you know, in markets like, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where MTV was, and, you know, they started, you know, looking at record stores and all of these kind of cool, hip new wave bands that were selling nowhere else were selling great in Tulsa. And this is where you can almost have a one-to-one correlation that depending on if you had cable and you had a mall store near you, the, the top sales would be much different than someone down the road if they didn't have MTV. And so it really... You know, Duran Duran especially was one of the biggest early success stories, though, especially with Rio. They did some market research and found out that it was like, and I think it was in Dallas, maybe, that it was like places where Rio was selling well, those places had MTV. Places where it wasn't, no MTV. They proved it. It was really interesting.
1: Definitely did. And in your book, MTV's Director of Promotion said originally, American radio saw no reason for videos and that bands should be heard and not seen. Is that right?
2: And it's true. And because you think about it and, you know, because touring was so you know the bread and butter of these bands you know they would go out and they made so much money that way you know they were able to reach everyone I mean they would go on these massive tours and that's how they could actually reach bands and then radio you know because radio was still so dominant you know if you're a big successful rock band and you're drawing 20,000 people a night and having radio hits why would you need a video you know because you were ready you know you didn't need to expand your audience at all and Duran Duran really flipped script because you know in England music video was such a major thing you know you needed it for, you know, potentially top of the pops, if you were touring, or if if you wanted to beam a video to Australia, because you couldn't reach there, it's like, all right, we'll send a video. And so but in England, it was a lot more acceptable to make music videos. And I mean, honestly, it starts with the Beatles and the Stones, Mm. who saw the potential for, you know, video and how it could really convey an aesthetic and a sound well before everyone else. So you know, they really had that culture ingrained in them for decades. And so Duran Duran really grabbed onto that and really saw the potential and how it could be modernized even. You know, now the videos were becoming there were more video shows and they needed time to fill. And so Duran Duran provided the kind of the clips that, you know, they knew would get airplay.
1: Yeah, and they would continue to make video central to their music within their live shows and things like that. And it, it did become kind of their brand and, and they definitely were on it early, that's for sure.
2: Absolutely. You know what I mean? I think their 1984 Sing Blue Silver Tour, you know, they had video screens. and That was completely novel at the time. And, you know, and that was, you know, so many newspaper articles would write about this and commented on that, you know, because they were, you know, the quote unquote video band. And so, but I mean, you know, now every show you go to, you have to have a video screen. If bands don't, people comment on it. So it's, it's very interesting.
1: Well, critics of the band took issue with the video saying the opulence and the material excess embodied was everything wrong with the 80s. And we talked a little bit about how young these guys were, right? Yeah. What was Simon LeBond's take on that, if you recall?
2: Every member of the band really was enthusiastic about video. You know, they were very much like, you know, kind of their experimental edge. Sure, this is cool. Let's try it. Simon really wanted Duran Duran to be kind of video like, you know, as, as he put it, I think it was like dark side of the moon was to you know stereo he's like we want Duran Duran to be kind of like video basically you know he really saw it as an art form and saw video and you know he has an acting background and so it makes a lot of sense why he would really kind of see the potential but he was like yeah you know this is this is what I wanted to be and there's a lot of potential there too you know especially with the hungry like the wolf video he's kind of the center of attention and he's (laughs) he's a natural on camera you know so I think he really understood how you could kind of use that extend your brand but also really kind of put forth you know a more playful side too and it's like the kind of the 360 degree view of a band that people weren't necessarily thinking about at the time some bands were the more cutting-edge bands were but you know like Duran Duran but yeah let's
1: not forget that he was in his early 20s and on a sailboat in this beautiful (laughs) area with beautiful girls and champagne and I think that he was like what's wrong with this
2: Well, and that too, you know, and, but, you know, it's so funny because they, they almost manifested that because, you know, when they were making those videos, you know, Rio wasn't a success yet. You know, I think the, you know, Rio, the video where they're on the yacht and it's all beautiful. They were taking a break after I think the record came out. And so they were on vacation. So, I mean, A, they were a little bit more relaxed anyway, because, you know, they're kind of having downtime on a beat, you know, so you were a little bit more, you know, unguarded and up for doing anything. But, you know, they were, they were not like these kind of, you know, global jet setters. They they were getting there, but they weren't necessarily the like Beatlemania, you know, type hysteria when they filmed that boat scene. It's almost like they kind of manifested that for themselves, you know, or they, they did that scene and, you know, it, it came true almost, which is very funny. So was 1983 the year Duran Duran? You know, it's funny because chart-wise in America, yes, that was the year. And it's so, it's so funny with timing, you know, so Duran Duran had three albums on the charts by the end of the year. Rio became so successful. Their debut record was reissued and their debut became a success in America. By the end of 1983, um, Seven of the Ragged Tiger came out, was charting. So, I mean... A, on the album chart, they had, you know, everything locked down. They had a ton of hit singles that year. I mean, as soon as a hit, you know, a single came up, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf hit number three. As soon as that went down, they had something else waiting in the wings. And so all year, Duran Duran was dominant. And they really set the stage. So in 1984, they came back to America and did the Sing Blue Silver Tour. They did touring for Rio, but this was like the real victory lap. After, you know, Rio was a success, you know, all right, we're going to do this. And so they really set the stage for it. You know, but what's funny is that, you know, in 1983, Duran Duran on snl in america and they had a very um well attended video in store in times square but they were out of the country a lot of the time making a record so they weren't even necessarily in america that much Mm. you know very visibly and so they kind of you know became a success that it was sort of like wow all right you know they had other plans and so they supported it and everything but think that most fans would be like oh my gosh we're a success let's get some tour dates on the calendar but they they were busy and so you know there was a lot of anticipation for 1984 too
1: well, the band is still out there and on tour, and you say in the book their catalog is treated as an ever-evolving thing. I found for both them and other artists, you know, that I think there was a cover album. I find that fascinating. What can you tell us about that to close this out?
2: You know, I mean, Duran Duran has a new record out in October, and they've released some songs from it. And, I mean, first off, they don't sound like anything they've put out before. I mean, and what band, you know, over 40 years in their career is still kind of mining new sounds? Very few bands have done that. Um, But second off, you know, over the years, you know, they've not necessarily been precious with like the, you know, all right, we need to play the original version of this song, you know, I mean, there's certain things like Rio definitely, you know, the sax solo always played a certain way, but like Hungry Like the Wolf. Over the years, they've done acoustic versions, they've done glam punk versions, they've done, you know, Bowie-esque versions. So they've really done, you know, not been afraid to sort of, you know, mess around a little bit with what they did, just, you know, depending on fitting the era or their sound of the record and things like that. But You know, a lot of bands don't do that, you know, or a lot of bands, you know, but it's been mostly successful. And that's what I think is also impressive because, you know, sometimes when bands fool around with their biggest hits, people, you know, are just, aghast because it sounds so different. They've really never been afraid of experimenting. They're always moving forward and they're always kind of pushing themselves forward into new sounds and new things. That's why they still have such, you know, a rabid fan base. People are always kind of like, what are they going to come up with next? So it's, it's very cool. It's very, it's very exciting to be a Duran Duran fan. So deep
1: down, maybe they are punk rock.
2: (laughs) See, they are. You know, they're not like, you know, they're not beholden to the past. You know, they're not necessarily nostalgic. You know, they'll they definitely know that if they don't play certain hits, you know, they're not going to get out of the building without, you know, fans getting upset. But like, you know, over the years, little things have been, you know, evolved and changed. And like, you know, you can't necessarily say, oh, they're an 80s band. You know, they're just an 80s band relying on their glory because, you know, there are bands like that that tour and you can tell that they're not not making new music still playing the same old stuff. It sounds a little tired, but Duran Duran always just has something going on and there's always something kind of flashy and something kind of, all right, you know what, we're, we're going we're to try to better ourselves. So there's that competition too. So it's, it's very cool.
1: You certainly are a fan, and you seem to be all about the music. What's next for Annie Zaleski? Do you have more writing or books or music?
2: Yeah, so I'm working on a book right now on the B-52s, actually, oh, for wow. University of Texas Press. And so I'm kind of digging into that, which is, you know, talk about another misunderstood band, the B-52s. So that's that's been a, one of my other pandemic projects. So that's kind of next on my plate.
1: They're a great one. I saw them very early on and it was a little bit of a WTF moment, but in a good way, you know, in a very good way. I look forward to that book and maybe you can come back and talk with us about that when that's done.
2: That'd be awesome. I would love to.
1: You want to, uh, I know you're on Twitter. Uh, Where can people find you?
2: Twitter is the best way. I tend to share all of my work on Twitter or Instagram. I'm under Instagram at Annie Zaleski author.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us, Annie. It was, uh, it was eye-opening to read this book. As I said, I missed most of the story. I heard their music all the time, as anybody of that age did, you know, and uh, it was a really interesting read, and thanks for joining us.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep Dive podcasts there as well, and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
3: This year is your year, even if you also said that in 2022. And however you want to make a splash, Mother Nature can help you every step of the way with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes made from premium, supernatural, weather-repellent materials. So you can jump into this year with both feet, rain or shine. The high-top uppers are made from temperature-regulating, moisture-wicking merino wool treated with durable puddle guard technology to keep you dry and comfy. And you can take confident strides with supernatural rubber treads that grip for all-condition traction and sugarcane-based sweet foam midsoles that put a little bounce in each step. Allbirds is constantly innovating to increase the performance and longevity of their earth-friendly materials. So even on your toughest outings, you'll wear out before your shoes do. This year, make a splash without worrying about getting your feet wet with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's a l l b i r d s.com.